Well, Father, that is the desire of our heart to know you more and uh, to live out the great salvation that we possess in Christ and to find him our true rest. And thank you that he alone is our righteousness and that we can stand robed in his righteousness, uh, just and clean and holy and pure in your presence. And thank you for the great work of salvation that you've done in us. We want to be grateful people, Lord. Forgive us for allowing ourselves to be so negative, so often discouraged and defeated uh, when we have all things in Christ and are seated in the heavenlies. Father, this Thanksgiving weekend, we do recognize that we are a blessed people. And I just pray that as we take our Bibles and study together, that it would be a helpful reminder uh, to just uh, demonstrate out of the core of our being, gratitude spilling out from the reality of our salvation and your watchful eye and caring hand upon us. We commit this time to you. Uh, Please benefit and grow your church through it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that um, Thanksgiving, like Christmas, is loaded with ritual and um, times together as a family. You have the way that you celebrate Thanksgiving, we do it the same way for 28 years in a row. Uh, Apart from the year that we had a car wreck in 2007, I load up on Sunday afternoon and now Jonathan's with me and we head up to Preston County and and we deer hunt uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning. If we're still empty, we hunt some more, get in, get a shower, shave finally. And uh, the family all arrives at the farm. What good times that is. Janet's aunt or her cousin's farm. And the family comes in from all around and we do what? We feast. And what a joy it was once again this year to gather there. Some even made it in from as far away as Florida. And uh, what, a, what a great time. And aren't we a blessed people? And I know that you have the same traditions in different ways in your home. And often the countertops and the tables are just loaded with food. And we're so blessed when so much of the world goes without. And I was thinking about the origin of Thanksgiving and how it really did focus on food or the lack thereof. And I thought it might be worthwhile for us to take just a minute and uh, you listen as I read sort of a summary of some of the facts of the first Thanksgiving based upon Peter Marshall and David Manuel's uh, research and work in their book called The Light and the Glory. Uh, Just listen as I read. Besides symbolizing a time when many of us gathered a feast on turkey, cranberry sauce, and apple pie, what does the word truly mean? Thanksgiving. America's revered holiday was founded by a group of struggling pilgrims during the fall of 1621. Peter Marshall and David Manuel's account, The Light and the Glory, tells how the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock endured extreme hardship to pioneer a new land. Three long months at sea aboard the Mayflower, and a brutal winter had left them ragged, malnourished, and susceptible to disease. During the first four months of that year, nearly half of the group had succumbed to illness and died under the harsh strain of their barren lifestyle. The pilgrim's daily existence was a life-or-death battle to overcome constant hunger, sickness, and exposure to the elements 
Crudely assembled houses made of mud daub were their only shelter from the icy New England weather. Because they were not yet knowledgeable about their new environment's agriculture, planting gardens in the hostile conditions proved virtually fruitless. Every meal was portioned out meticulously. The death toll, a constant reminder of their fragility, rose steadily. At one point, only five men were well enough to care for the sick. And despite their tribulations, the pilgrims thanked the Lord every day, petitioning Him for rehabilitation. One morning, during an ordinary Sunday worship service, the Lord sent tangible evidence that He had heard their prayers. Their church service was interrupted by an unexpected guest, an Algonquin Indian chief who assessed their hopeless situation and returned with a helper named Squanto. The pilgrims, who had warred with Indians before and lived with a continuous fear of being attacked by them, were astonished by their new friend's eagerness to prove much-needed assistance. Squanto, a, a Pataqua Indian who spoke perfect English, taught the pilgrims how to hunt game, trap beavers, and plant Indian corn, a staple that would eventually save their lives. When the harvest yielded more than the pilgrims could eat, Governor William Bradford, their elected leader, declared a day of public thanksgiving. He invited the chief of a friendly neighboring Indian tribe to join in their tribute of thanksgiving. The pilgrims were excited to celebrate with their honored guests, but were completely shocked when he arrived with 90 other Indians from their tribe. Although God had provided abundantly, their food supply would not accommodate a group of this size, and they had no idea how to feed their visitors Despite their quandary, all worries were soon dismissed. To their amazement and ever-increasing thankfulness, the Indians had brought with them five dressed deer and twelve fat wild turkeys. Over time, they taught the women how to make pudding, maple syrup, and an Indian delicacy, roasted popcorn. But the pilgrims' trials were far from finished. Their plentiful autumn was followed by a particularly treacherous winter, Unfortunately, the weather proved to be the least of their ailments. In November, a ship called the Fortune dropped anchor in their harbor. Aboard the ship were 35 more colonists who had brought with them no provisions, no food, no extra clothing, no equipment for survival. Additionally, the oppression of the physical environment had become almost unbearable after a 12-week drought dried up their crops and withered their spirits. The newcomers' arrival had drained already inadequate rations, and there was no obvious resource for sustenance. At their lowest point, the pilgrims were reduced to a daily ration of five kernels of corn apiece. In utter desperation, they fell to their knees and prayed for eight hours without ceasing. Again, God heard their supplications. Fourteen days of rain followed. A second day of thanksgiving was declared. The neighboring Indian chief was again their honored guest. He brought with him 120 braves this time, and the pilgrims feasted on game and turkey as they had during their previous celebration. Only this time, one dish was different. The first course, served on an empty plate in front of each person, consisted of five kernels of corn, a gentle reminder of God's faithful provision for them. Well, it's no wonder that feasting is part of our Thanksgiving tradition. That from the very beginning, um, one of the reasons that God's people gathered to be thankful was to praise Him for His provision. Do you do that? Are you a thankful person? 
I trust that you are. I want this morning for us to turn to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to divide our sermon in two parts today. First of all, I would like for us to receive instruction, and I want to follow our instruction with illustration. Our instruction in the New Testament will lead us to the Old Testament for a real powerful illustration in the lives of God's people. God's people are to be thankful people. Do you know that? It's, it's spread throughout the Word of God in the testimonies of His people in historical accounts. It's uh, spread throughout the, in the, the writing of the hymns and songs of the psalmist. Um, praising God and giving thanks is there. In Paul's instruction, we have specific words of instruction. We have, we have phrases like, in everything give thanks from Paul. We have, we have phrases like in Ephesians 4, always giving thanks. God's people are to be thankful people. I want to tell you that I'm speaking specifically to the church today. What I mean by that, I'm speaking specifically to people who are followers of Jesus Christ. You would say um, that you have been to the cross You know what it is to need a Savior from your sin. And you understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And you have bowed your head and your heart in humility before God. And you have recognized your sinfulness. And that there was nothing you could do to satisfy the demands of a holy God. And you lived in uh, damnation and judgment and accountability for your own sin. But then one day the lights flashed on and you understood that Jesus went to the cross and he he did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. That is, he took all of your sin and he brought it upon himself as though he had sinned it, even though he alone had kept the law perfectly. He alone was completely righteous and pure. He alone was an acceptable high priest to go right before the Heavenly Father in his own righteousness. And what he did at the cross was he took our sin, paid the price for it as though he deserved it. And he gave us the right to come to him and by faith accept his completed work and receive his righteousness as though we had kept the law. What a great exchange. And that all happens at the cross where God meets man. And it's an amazing moment. And if you've been there, you know it. And if you haven't been there, you don't know it. You recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, saving us from the wages of our sin. That's who I'm talking to today because you know Christ. You're now a follower of Christ. In fact, the Bible says, if you've accepted this finished work of Christ by faith for you, knowing that your sin was given to Christ and you've accepted his work for your salvation alone and he rose from the dead to seal all that is truth, Um, then you're a Christian. You're a born-again Christian. You're part of the family of God. You're also part of His church. And what happens is, as we'll see in Colossians, is there's actually a, a new way of living. And in this new way of living, I want you to see that a core value of our lives is gratitude. The spillover of the results of the finished work of Christ on the cross means that we see the world differently and we are to be people of gratitude. We are to be thankful people. You know what a core value is, don't you? Core values are those fundamental beliefs. Companies and organizations often talk core values. Christians have core values. 
The core value is a fundamental belief of a person or an organization that becomes a guiding principle to dictate our action or our behavior. Gratitude would be one of those things. It would be something that would identify us as, as who we are, followers of Christ. What a shame when followers of Christ act like people who don't know Christ. Let's look into Colossians chapter 3 for our instruction this morning on these core, this, this dynamic of, of having gratitude as a core value or being known as a thankful person. There are numerous passages we could look at, 1 Thessalonians or Ephesians. Here's Colossians where Paul mentions being thankful three times. I want us to begin for our text this morning uh, as we receive this instruction from Colossians chapter 3. And I want to begin in verse 5 and make a little run into the context here because I want you to see the contrast between the old ways, someone who's not been to the cross, someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and the new way of living once you know Christ. And I want you to see that there's to be a dynamic of difference. There's to be a contrast. Paul writes in verse 5, Colossians chapter 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Why now? Look at verse 1. Here's why. Because you have been raised with Christ, and you're to seek those things which are above. You've been to the cross. Christ is seated at the heavenlies, at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on things that are of the earth. And you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now back down to verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Do what? Put them all away like, like old baggage, like old junk from behind the shed. Get rid of it. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You see, there was a way of life, and it was characterized by all of these negative things. With its practices, verse 10, and you have now put on, here's the contrast, put off, put on, put off, put on. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here's that phrase again, beginning of verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now look, and above all these things, put on love, verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, see believers in the body of Christ, and be thankful, a three-word sentence, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, here it is again, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times the Apostle Paul emphasizes that one of the realities of this newness of life and putting on this new attitude is that we will be thankful people. It's a core value. Let's just observe a few lessons from Paul's instruction here. The first thing I want you to see in this core value of gratitude in the life of the believer is number one, that it is a core value that stands in dramatic contrast with the old way of life. Number one, it is a dramatic contrast with the old way of life. Did you see the text? And you see how we've been risen with Christ and we're to seek those things which are above. And and verse five said to put these things away and no longer live like that. What a shame when believers in Christ look like they used to live before they knew Christ. When believers in Christ act and think like the rest of the world. We're not normal people. Do you know that? The world isn't even supposed to get us. In fact, the preaching of the cross is what to the lost people of the world? It's just foolishness. The word there in the Greek is moronic. We're supposed to be morons. There's the contrast. And one of the dynamics of change that identifies me is is this core value of gratitude, and it shows a dramatic contrast with how I used to live. The second thing I want you to see, and after Paul talks about putting it to death and then putting on and the contrast, is I want you to see what I referenced as that three-word sentence at the end of verse 15. As he says, above all, in verse 14, let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts. And he closes that time with saying, and be thankful. I want you to notice that this core value is a direct command. It is a direct command. And be thankful. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It doesn't have a question mark. It doesn't say, why don't you do this? It just says, do it. And be thankful, people. And you know and understand, don't you, that God never gives an imperative. He never gives a directive to his people that we can't fulfill. God doesn't ask us to do things that he doesn't equip us to obey. Most of us are feeling driven when it comes to gratitude, aren't we? We have uh, uh, the circumstances of our day do not unfold in the way in which we desire. And so we're upset, we're grouchy, uh, we're mean, we're negative. The glass is half empty. And it's all feelings based. And Paul's saying, knock it off, be thankful. You can do this. It is something actually that becomes a defining quality in my life. That's number three. It is a defining quality for believers in Christ. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, this is a one another phrase. So yes, there is the dynamic of other people being involved in my life. I think so often we think of this verse applying only when we go to church, as in walking through the front door of this cement block brick building with asphalt shingles. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, I'm in church. Yeah, I got the word of of Christ. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Yep, we do that at church with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But I want you to see that 
Yes, this is a one another. It's something, that, but it's something that's supposed to happen th- throughout the course of our lives and living, not just from nine to noon on Sunday morning. And so this is to be a defining quality. This, this reality that the Word of Christ, God's Word, is renewing my mind and it dwells in me richly. And then out of the knowledge of His Word and out of the meditation of His Word and out of the impact of the Word of life upon me in my daily living, what happens? A song comes out. And I have a song on my heart with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I wonder if you have a song in your heart. I don't know why, and I'm, I sometimes hesitate to say it publicly, and I have said it publicly, because I don't want it to go away, but for some reason, every morning, no matter what time my alarm goes off, if it's early or later or what time, mostly it's around 6.30, every time I wake up in the morning, I have a, a, a hymn or a, a praise song going through my head as soon as I wake up. I really like that, and I've learned to pay attention to it. I've learned, it's just there. I don't know if it's coming during my sleep. I don't know what it is. But there's just a song going every day. I wonder if you could groom that in your life. That there would be a song spilling out of your life. That there would be a joy of the Lord. Interesting how quickly that song can go away during the day. Circumstances change, don't they? But this isn't just a dynamic for at church. It's to characterize and be a defining quality of my life that out of the word of God and then the song in my heart, there is to be a thankfulness in my heart to God. Does that define you? Oh, not perfect, that's for sure. And probably Janet would say, I'm really glad he's preaching this message and I'm going to ask him to listen to his own message today. (laughs) Isn't it easy to just... Be careless about this core value of gratitude. Not only is it a defining quality, but I think that we need to look at it finally, number four, that it is a daily discipline. Look what he says. Look at how he brings, Paul does, into his teaching this attitude of thankfulness into, the, into even the mundane routines of our lives. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, um, whatever. Will you say that with me? And whatever. Would that be like washing dishes? Would that be like doing laundry? Would that be like getting up and going to work at 3.30 in the morning? Would that be like getting up and going to work at 6.30 in the morning? Would that be like doing homework? Would that be like raking leaves? Whatever. Whatever. And it's not the slang way, meaning I couldn't care less. Whatever. It's whatever. Whatever you do. He's talking about the routines of our lives. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's to be part of our daily discipline. I was thinking about that little verse in Proverbs 15.3 where it says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I was thinking you could, you could paraphrase that, couldn't you? And it might be helpful. The ears of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So that no matter whether I'm, I'm raking leaves or I'm at work in my cube or I'm, I'm uh, on the train traveling, wherever I am, there is God's eyes and there are God's ears. 
And is he hearing thankfulness coming from me? Or is he hearing griping, complaining, moaning, groaning, negativity? I'm not talking necessarily about the power of positive thinking. There is some aspect of a benefit of thinking positively. I live in Reelsville. I think that we have to understand reality. But reality is that God's people are to be thankful people. We're not just hallucinating or making things up. But we are defining our lives based upon the lens of the Word of God, our position in Christ, who we are in Christ. And it's to be a core value. God's people are to be thankful people. It's to stand in dramatic contrast with our old ways of living. It is a direct command to be obeyed. It is a defining quality of my life. And it is indeed part of the daily discipline of the routines of life. Paul told young Timothy to discipline himself unto godliness. We are to discipline ourselves unto gratitude. I will determine to be a thankful person. There's our instruction this morning. Let's recognize how important this core value is now by turning to the Old Testament and switching gears quite dramatically for a living illustration in God's people when they were not grateful and they had violated this core value and they had become negative and groaning. And let's see how serious this really is. We're moving now very rapidly to Exodus chapter 15. So we've received instruction. We recognize that the core value, one of the core values of the Christian life is to be defined by by gratitude. We are to be thankful people. When we turn to Exodus chapter 15, you need to understand that we're just about 45 days, chapter 16, about 45 days into their wilderness journey from when Moses led them out of the wilderness. You know the story well, the 10 plagues of Egypt. We referenced Moses in leadership just a couple weeks ago at our ordination service. I trust that was a good challenge for our church. And remember that Pharaoh didn't want to let the Israelites go. Um, It was going to be a horrible economic mess on his part. He was going to lose his cheap labor force. Um, God, through Moses, raised up a leader Through the ten plagues, after the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God shows the world that he is a great and mighty God. He turns Pharaoh's heart, and after the ten awful plagues in Egypt, out they go into the wilderness, and they're only a few days out, and what do they encounter? They encounter the Red Sea, and they're trapped against the sea, and they have the desert on either side, and they have Pharaoh's army coming after them, and what does God do? Parts the waters. They walk across on dry ground. Pharaoh's army comes through. God brings the water back together, drowns Pharaoh's army, rescues them. And what you have in chapter 15, and if you use an NIV or an ESV or a more contemporary translation, you'll notice that that in the paragraph form, it stands out as written as prose or a song. That's the way the, the contemporary translations will do. They will mark in their Bible just by the way it's listed that it's a song or it's a, it's a poem. And you'll notice that verses 1 through 18 is the song of Moses. And so what's happened? All of Israel with Moses at the lead are praising God. They're filled with gratitude. They just cannot... They can't get over the fact that they God has brought them out of Egypt. They've survived the plagues. Even as they exited, all of the Egyptian neighbors gave their jewelry to them. They come out wealthy, laden down with gold and silver and all of the loot 
of Egypt, and they're heading to the promised land. And then God, you know, God spared their lives in this incredible way with the parting of the sea. And so you have this great rejoicing. So let's pick it up at the end of verse chapter 15 at verse 22. And what I want you to see in this powerful illustration is how susceptible we are to not living out lives of gratitude. And how serious it is when we're negative and ungrateful. Verse 22 is where we're jumping in. And then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Uh Uh-oh. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the water. Things are getting worse. Of Merah, because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled, here we go, against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him how to take a log, and he threw this wood into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, not a statue, but a statute, a principle, a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. It's, it's, an, it's an, an emphasis on the blessing of obedience is what that is. You obey God, you humble your heart in the presence of God. It's not magic. It doesn't mean that you live necessarily a charmed life, but he's pointing out that there is a blessing of obedience. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam then, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, very appropriately named, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So essentially 45 days out. Now notice that they were only essentially three days out at the end of chapter 16 when they began to groan after three days without water. They set out from Elam, the wilderness of sin, 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, 16.2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what's the next word? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. In the, what are God's people supposed to be? We're supposed to be thankful people. It's supposed to be a defining core value of our lives. And here, circumstances, just like in our daily living, just like in our lives, a people who are blessed beyond measure, like the Israelites, with circumstances, allow ourselves to grumble. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Let's just pick up a few quick lessons here. The first thing I want you to see about a loss of joy or a lack of gratitude in our lives illustrated in the Israelites, letting that core value slip. Number one, it can happen in a hurry. It can happen in a hurry. Do you know that? Just the circumstances of life after three days, after seeing God work in the most incredible, remarkable manner, parting the waters, drowning Pharaoh's army, all of the plagues, these incredible signs of power, providing a sweetener for the water, Moses being able to make the bitter water sweet through God's instruction, God meeting their needs. 
I mean, you would think that they would be laughing with joy after, okay, God, how are you going to solve this problem? No, immediately they grumble. They begin to remind Moses and Aaron that we used to eat bread and meat back in Egypt. What'd you do? Bring us out here to die? It's incredible how quickly we can flip the switch from being grateful people to being groaning people. Instead of seeing the goodness of God at hand, they saw the the death of the desert. They took their focus off of their mighty God. It happens in a hurry. I want you to notice at the beginning of chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, notice that it says in verse 2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The whole congregation. You know, somebody didn't stand up with a big sign and, and a megaphone and say, Okay, people, counter down. Three, two, one. Groan. It's not how it works, is it? You know what's so incredibly important about this is number two lesson is that bitterness, groaning, a lack of a lack of gratitude. Number two is hard to contain. It's hard to contain. It spreads like a disease. And it started in somebody's tent. Some little group of people were together at the coffee shop and they didn't like the day. And they were negative and they began to groan and it picked up in the neighborhood and it went up this side row of tents and it went through this row of tents and it went out to the people who are watching the sheep and the next thing you know, the entire camp is groaning. Whoa. It happens in a hurry. Three days, 45 days from some of the most great events of God's deliverance and now they are ungrateful. It's hard to contain. Thirdly, I want you to see Something that's very important that should transform our thinking is that it is heard by God. It is heard by God when we groan and moan and are ungrateful. Remember I referenced Proverbs 15.3? The ears of the Lord, just like His eyes, are everywhere listening. Notice in chapter 16, as we move ahead a few verses quickly, notice in verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has, what's the next phrase? He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us, Moses said. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has, here it is again, heard your grumbling. That you grumble against Him. What are we? Here it is again. Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. What a profound reality. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord. Here it is again. For He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, here it is again, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. It is heard by the Lord. The fourth thing I want you to see is that it's heavy for leaders. Did you notice how in the passage... That they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And Moses points out, you're not grumbling against me, you're grumbling against the Lord. 
Chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, illustrates this as well. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on the wilderness, moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? our livestock with thirst. So then Moses cries out to the Lord and so forth. When people groan against their spiritual leadership, it's heavy for those leaders. This would be a good time for me to say how thankful I am for a congregation that does not grumble. How easy it is to shepherd and lead this flock in comparison to so many. And you receive the word well. Spiritual leaders, as we emphasized in our sermon a couple weeks ago on the life of Moses in looking at leadership, his job, one of his jobs, the spiritual leader, is to get people from where they are to where they're supposed to be. And that's what Moses is supposed to do. And they grumble against him. And they grumble against the Lord. And it was so heavy on Moses that he wanted to quit. This attitude of of ingratitude, this lack of thankfulness can happen in a hurry. It's hard to contain. It's heard by God's ears. It's heavy for leaders. And let's just conclude with this final thought. Number five, it hurts our children. When you step back from this passage and look at it as a whole, what's going to happen now, 45, 50 days into it, from crossing out of Egypt, crossing the sea into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they're 45 days into their trip. But when are they going to arrive? 40 years, 40 years, over 39 years later, they will finally go in. And who gets to go in? Why are they in the wilderness for 40 years? What has to happen over the course of the next 39 plus years? All of these children are going to do what? They're going to bury their mom. They're going to bury their dad. They're going to bury their aunt. They're going to bury their uncle. They're going to bury gramps and grams. They're going to bury their neighbor. They're going to bury their boss. And for 40 years, they live in the wilderness. And yes, God provided for them. But just think about how the adult generation's grumbling hurt their children. What are our children hearing us say? What kind of attitude and response are we giving testimony to, to our children, where they catch really more than they're taught in a lot of ways? And I think that's one of the final lessons that we take from the day. How this generation hurt their children. I mean, certainly some sharp 17-year-old kid figured out on a hunting trip or a fishing trip as he was messing around outside the camp. You know, do you know that the promised land is only like 11 days that way? That's all it is. How come we don't do this? And for 40 years, they take a big loop. So that because why? Because of their grumbling... Because they lost their heart of gratitude. It hurts our children. Well, how do we build a gratitude? How do we build the core value of gratitude? Number one, I think we have to definitely remove it from the category of feelings into the category of willful obedience. How does gratitude become a core value in my life? How do I become a thankful person? Number one, I stop waiting to feel thankful and I move it into the category of a willful obedience. I discipline myself onto gratitude. 
You watch what happens. It sounds kind of weird because we are so emotionally based when it comes to thankfulness. Secondly, I think it's helpful to remember that God is listening. God is listening. You know when things get really ugly at your house, you ever say, shh, be quiet, the neighbors are going to hear you. Don't talk like that. Straighten up. What if the neighbors heard you talking like that? God's ear is there, isn't it? That God is listening, that we would learn uh, the, the, the discipline of practicing His presence. Thirdly, I think it's important to rehearse the blessing of God's goodness daily. That we would be people who daily look for God's blessing and we rehearse that. What are you thankful for today? I think that's a great question to, to ask your loved ones, your family. What are you thankful for today? What was a blessing today that we rehearse God's blessing? Father, we want to be thankful people. Forgive us for the ease with which we mouth off. And how quickly we crumble into bad attitudes. Would you help us to have as the spillover of our lives gratitude and thankfulness? May it be indeed a core value in our Christian walk. We need your strength to make this happen. In Jesus' name we ask that. Amen.